Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, thanks for downloading this podcast. Quick update before we start. I'm going to be presenting my own for a bit as Kev is working on a short series we'll be reducing shortly, uh, which will be podcasting what we're calling the General Service Medal Wars, places like Aden, Borneo and Malaya, so keep an ear out for that in the future. Today, my guest is David Montgomery, who was born and raised in East Africa, and after graduating Exeter University, he joined the Army and served for 28 years before retiring in 2000 after commanding 7 Armour Brigade. David co-founded Benchmark Search in 2002, where he's MD of a company which provides candidates for the defence, security and other markets. On this episode, we discuss his army career, his time at MOD and issues with procurement, operations in Kosovo, his transition to Sevy Street, and what attributes make soldiers good and bad employees in the business world, and also what he thinks the future holds for the army. As usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest's choice of book, film or luxury item. Also, don't forget to help spread the word by liking and sharing the podcast or by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. Finally, if you're feeling generous, you can support the series by buying a coffee and the link for that is in the show notes. Let's crack on. David, thanks for coming to the podcast and can you start by telling us why you joined the army and why you chose your regiment, the 5th Royal Inniskillen Dragoon Guards, known as the Skins. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me on. Like so much has happened in my life, it's really a matter of happenstance. I won't say I've drifted, but I've free-flowed through life, I think. The story here really begins at school. As a schoolboy, I was always, for no apparent reason, very keen on going into the Navy. When I was doing my A-levels, I had a very good careers master who was under the impression that I was too bright, as he put it, to go into the services. So he said, you ought to go and do something else. I didn't know what, but I don't come from a business background at all. So family-wise and everything, 
everyone in my family has either been military government service in Kenya where they were district commissioners, provincial officers, all that sort of thing. And so I had no idea about business. It never even occurred to me to go into business. So that one part out. And so I thought I might go into the foreign office. I rather fancied myself as a diplomat somewhere. At the end of my university time, I applied for the foreign office. I did the exam only to discover that actually I wasn't eligible because I hadn't lived in England or in UK long enough. And they said, well, you've had three years at university. You need another. You have to do five consecutive years. Uh, why did not you go and do something else for a while? Why not go to the army or some other short service commission? And it just so happened there were two friends at Exeter University with me who were both skins. Sadly, neither of them still with us. They were great friends. And they said, look, come and join us. It's only a short service. What does it matter? So I joined them and never a word of regret since then. But I've, I absolutely adored it. Great regiment. I, I'm sure everyone thinks their regiment was the best, but ours actually was. And I had a great time then. <laughs> And it, it was just fantastic. It suited me. I seemed to suit the, the, the regiment. And after a very short time, I converted from short service to regular. And then I had a very lucky, gifted, whatever career. One of the things that's come out in this podcast when we've talked about the Cold War era, and you joined up in the early 70s. When I joined up in 85, the army was 150,000 plus strong. And I think there was 55,000 in BOR at the time. A lot of that was armoured regiments. During your time and up until the period now, you must have seen the, the decline in armour as quite an, an upset, I think is probably the right phrase. It's probably the most dramatic of all the reductions. When I was commissioned in 72, there were 19 armoured regiments to go to. And BOR, although there wasn't much fighting going on there, the Cold War was going on there. And that was a leading edge, we thought anyway, of the army at the time. My career was, I spent 14 years in Germany altogether in, in the British Army of the Rhine. And in that time, I saw it change very dramatically. Somehow, we always seemed to be busy, probably because some of our tanks were so unreliable, we spent a lot of time maintaining them. But maintaining them, we did. And actually, if you're that way inclined, which I am, it's terrific fun being in a tank. It's quite grimy and quite dirty and quite uncomfortable. But it is great fun. It's a massive train set to be playing with. And at the time, the Skins, being an Irish regiment, they, they thought it was wrong to deploy us to Ireland. What that meant is we had longer than anyone else in armour. And I reckon by the end of my 28 years, I probably spent longer in tanks than any, any of my contemporaries, which meant I was reasonably good at it, I hope. And it certainly meant I enjoyed it. Were you on Chieftain for quite a bit of time? All my regimental duty was on Chieftain. Uh, we started with a Mark II and we ended up with a Mark Eight or Mark Ten. I can't remember. Famously unreliable, oh. engine-wise... Still a good gun, very good protection. And actually, if you looked after it right, and if it was used a lot, it was quite reliable. Mm. We prided ourselves. We had 57 tanks in the regiment. We prided ourselves on leaving the camp with 57 tanks, guns front. We didn't always come back with 57, but we had them. We were confident. We, we never had to put it to the test, but we were confident that we could more than hold our own against whatever the Soviets, who were the perceived threat at the time, could, could overgast us at the end of my time in command. I was towed out on the, on the chief, and just as we were changing over to Challenger. Yeah, it's a, a couple of interesting points I'd like to pick up on there. Is, is firstly, you're saying about the the quantity of equipment, and I think a lot of armoured regiments and, tra- and, and regiments with tracks suffered from those reliability issues and, and keeping vehicles on the road. You were very well exercised in Germany, across the board in the British Army at the time. You start off in the year doing battery or squadron level exercises, building up to the big exercises later on in the year firing camps and then every two or three years you'd have a massive exercise like Lionheart or Reforger where 
but they'd rehearsed bringing in the reinforcements. And it's interesting watching the, the war in Ukraine because there was a lot of mickey taking about Cold War soldiers due to the sort of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But one thing I have noticed in, in Ukraine is a poor level of some essential skills on both sides, like track discipline, the basics yeah. of camouflage in vehicles. Those poor levels of skills would not have been tolerated in BOR. And it's just interesting that both of those Russian and Ukrainian armies struggle at those basics. You're right. And we did pride ourselves on our skills and drills. We had a very good system in my regiment of, of competitions. And the thing was to be the elite troop, the best troop in the regiment. And that was really the feather in your cap. I never got that. And, and it's the application of, and we will come on to this, I suspect, we're talking later about what the military gives you. But one of the things it does give you, it gives you a desire, a very competitive desire to be the best. In a peacetime situation, which breeds through into an operational situation, all the time you're trying to excel. As a result, every regiment thinks they're the best. Every regiment really tries their hardest. Every troop tries to be the best. And it does matter. And if it doesn't matter to you, you're in the wrong game. One of the things I noticed when I was brigade commander, we did lieutenant to captain's promotion exams. And the thing that staggered me was that even by this stage, to, to, this is what, 95, 96, even by this stage, people had lost any idea of scale. So when you gave them a question in the captain's promotion exam, what size do you, you expect a brigade assembly area to be? And they were putting you in, trying to put you in a grid square. And so the first thing I did as a brigade commander, I got everything together. I said, we are going to, we were lucky we were on home ranges. We are going to deploy every single vehicle that can move. And we're going to move them, or we're going to move them onto the, into the middle of the impact area because uh, we had to close the weekend. Going to move everyone in there. I'm going to show you what a brigade looks like on the ground if you haven't seen it. And the GOC said, I'll come and stand on the dais and take the salute. I said, you'll be there for seven and three quarter hours. It is a massive undertaking. And we used to do this. We used to be on, as you say, we were a forger we did with the Americans in the South. It's a huge undertaking. And we lost that. And it's a different army. It's every bit as good. It's certainly smaller. I'm sure we'll come on to that as well. But it's it's interesting. You see some of the lessons learned in the Ukraine that they're talking about. You can't have big headquarters static for any length of time. Dispersed positions. So it's interesting that a lot of the stuff talked about in Ukraine that I think in some respects has been forgotten about. I just wonder what you were thinking about that. There are different lessons. There, there are some things that will never change. I, I think we're learning different lessons and we're not necessarily learning the good lessons, not necessarily bad ones either. And my central thesis is actually the army's every bit as good as it ever was. It lacks numbers, it lacks some equipment. But the key question for the army is, the people who are directing the army, by that the senior soldiers and the politicians, must ask it to do the right things because we are there for a purpose and we're very good at what we do. And I'll come on to that and I'll explain it as we go along. Could you give us an overview of your army career from Sandhurst to your final appointment commanding 7 Armoured Brigade? I would describe my career as typical of a young, reasonably bright, I like to think, graduate. Leaving Sanders, I was 21, going to a, a line cavalry regiment stationed in Germany. And it's not a single track career because, as you will know, 
you tend to switch from regimental duties to staff jobs to operational tours and whatever. And my career, I, I left Sandhurst. I went to the regiment, the troop leader, fleet chief and tanks in Germany. I had a six-month operational tour in Cyprus with UN peacekeeping on our feet. And then progressed through the regimental hierarchy, squadron second in command. Very lucky to do that in Berlin, which was pre-the wall coming down. And I was second in command. I was 23 years old. I was in a mess with eight or nine other officers. We were an independent squadron. It was just a ball because it was much more fun in those days. So I did squadron second in command, then adjutant, which, as you know, is a key staff job in the regiment, which was, again, very demanding, but very good fun. And then after that, I had two shots at being a squad leader, which was good. Uh, first one, pre-staff college, second one after staff college. And in terms of the most rewarding job for an officer at regimental duty you can't get better than being a squadron leader of an armored squadron you've got 15 tanks about 100 people between 17 and 100 people under one you have direct command of everyone you're all on the same net you talk to each other you know everyone by name you know all about them you know about their families you've probably served with them before and that was just terrific and i had two or three shots of going to batters which is if you like that sort of thing, it's the most terrific one. Throughout my time in the Army, it comes clear, is my regret is I didn't do more operational tours. Very little operational time. That's product of being in an Irish regiment, who at the time they thought we shouldn't send to Ireland. When they did eventually send us to Ireland, I'd left the regiment by then. And as we showed at the time, we were every bit as good, if not better, because we understood the local people, etc. A lot of fun. And I can honestly say in 28 years, I never had a job I didn't want, had a job which I shouldn't have wanted, my last year on the Ministry of Defence, which wasn't a barrel of laughs. But I never had a, an immediate superior or a boss anywhere up the chain that I didn't get on with, but I didn't think had my back. In my 28 years, I think I probably did 28 different jobs. In my 23 years of marriage, I had 19 separate homes. We had a very disrupted life. The, av the average for an officer who's moving on reasonably quickly would, would be about a year in one pace and one job because you have to get back to the regiment just stay moving or just stay to ride somewhere and and everything changed but but the constant and the regiment and i say this as coming from a family regiment it is a constant so while i was commanding the regiment i had two rsms the first rsm for my first in command had been my gunner on my tank or my operator on my tank when I joined. So in 89, I had the same guy who joined with me on my tank in 72, 73. And the second RSM was a guy who'd been my troop corporal in my next troop. So they'd known me and I'd known them for 20 odd years. And what that gave was a degree of trust. And it also removed a layer of bullshit. So if I would say to the RSM, I'm really fed up with those young officers, they're doing this. He said, Colonel, I remember you at that age. You were every bit as bad, if not worse. And it removed that and it humanized everything. It's a relationship of mutual respect. And it, it's, it's not casual, informal, first names or anything like that, but there's a mutual respect and a mutual affection and they're for each other. So I had a very happy regimental career. I had three teaching jobs. I taught at Santos for two years, which was terrific. If you want the combination of a supposedly languid cavalry officer with a grenadier guard sergeant as his color sergeant, 
you've got the ideal teaching environment. Santos was the, my first non-regimental job, and what it did, it opened my eyes to the fact that there were good people everywhere. So I just thought I was in such a special regiment that no one else could be as good. And suddenly I was at my peer group, we were all captains. We were all captains in our late 20s, early 30s. And we were all, we like to think anyway, sent there by our regiments because they thought we were good people to have to attract other officers. And so you were surrounded by what, at least on the surface, and in fact underneath as well, were really good fellow officers, very good color sergeants, sergeant majors. When you see the impact of getting, in some cases, a schoolboy aged 18 and turning him out seven months later as an operational second lieutenant in charge of platoon or troop, it's it's quite something. And you could sit back and say, I helped do that. That's his great sense of achievement. I taught at the staff college later and was lucky enough to get a secondment to the Cayman Staff College for a year there, which again took me home at a good time. It's my mother's last years and I could be at home with her at the same time as working with the Kenyan Staff College as the first officer to go there to do that. After command, I went to the Chief of Staff for one div, so it's four div, and there were three divisions in Germany, and it was a time of massive contraction, so we ended up with three divisions worth in one division headquarters, which became one div in Hertford, and then lucky enough to be picked up from there to go and command 7 Brigade, which, as we all know, is the finest brigade in the British Army, and I did that for two years. <laughs> and had a great time with the old desert rats. We were the first people to be a training brigade, so we pioneered the training in Poland. Typical of my career, I took the brigade over when they came back from Bosnia and handed them over to my successors. They were about to go again, it's just the way it was. Um, and there was a real regret there, but I had a great time there. Uh, we did okay. And then I got a telephone call from um, when I was commanding the brigade. The telephone rang, and it was a personnel branch saying, what would you say if I asked you to go to India for a year? And I said, it was this sort of wet, cold, dreary day in Hona. And I, I said, what would you say? I'd say, when does the plane leave? And so I was lucky enough to go to India. I had a year there, and that was now 25 years ago. What was that yeah. job you were doing over there, David? I was doing the equivalent of Royal College Defence Study, RCDS, called National Defence College. It was very interesting because I was the only... European on a course of about 70 officers, all brigadier equivalents in, in the three services or civil service in India. And it's the first time I really knew what it was like to be an overseas student. And you learned a lot about people. And when you see what's happening in the rest of the world now, and I see things happening in India now, and I realize that although India speaks not only English, but excellent English, and although they have the British colonial background, by way of their equipment they've got from the Russians, by the way of their tactics. For example, map marking. When they're map marking, friendly forces were map marked in red and enemy mm. forces were marked in blue. The scale of things, I mean, there are three million men under arms in the country. My pals who went on to command corps and all that, and you have a corps commander who has 55,000 chaps under command. And then after that, they said to me, come back to the Ministry of Defence. You need to spend some time in the Ministry of Defence, which I foolishly believe. And I was sent back for a job called DFD, Director of Force Development, which was reasonably important because it's time of the first defence review under Lord Robertson, as he became Lord George Robertson. I played a part, not a, I might say a particularly significant part, I played a part in writing the 
defence and balancing competing concerns of the three services and doing things like did we need two aircraft carriers more than whatever number of tanks and so on and I found myself as nobody's best friend. Why do you think there's such a mess made of procurement in in the UK or appears to be a mess? I, I wish I knew. I've never been involved in procurement. So what, what we were doing at the, the at the top end, we were doing the conceptual stuff. So we were saying, if you're trying to do it, and we, we ran a whole load of scenarios. I won't go into them because some of them are probably still sensitive now. If you're going to do this, what do you need? Key to it all was the policy, and the key is what you want to do. And unless you've got a clear idea of what you want to do, I'll come back to this later in the conversation. Unless you have a clear idea of what you want to do, you're never going to get the right equipment. You're never going to get the right thing. So what do you want your equipment to do? What is it there for? And if that's what you want it to do, how is it best designed, built, procured, maintained, housed? How do you do that? And that's the same with everything we do. You have to have a clear idea. And this was laid out in the time in a thing called the DPAs, Defense Planning Assumptions. So if we assume, for example, we needed to be a significant force in a coalition, we had to produce 15% of that US-led coalition, which is what it nearly always would be. You had to say, what would that consist of? And so you you said you made an assumption about a certain number of warfighting brigades, a certain number of one-off operations, a certain number of perpetual operations, and you did all the force levels and all the equipment levels based on that. So that's how you start. Once you get beyond that, you get down into the greater granularity, you start saying, okay, given that we need to be a war fighting brigade, what does that consist of? What percentage of it is artillery? How much of it is armor? And so on and so forth. And only after that do you start thinking about, okay, now what can we afford? And then the realism comes in and you have to change some of your assumptions. And I sometimes worry that we forget that's the way it should be, that we forget it should be led by what do you want to do what do you need to do it with? How can you procure it? If you're going to do that, what do you have to give up? Ajax is an example. Ajax, which in my day was a project called Tracer. And it has been, well, I don't think I'll be shocked for saying it's been a pretty close to being an unmitigated disaster. And if you want a light, stealthy vehicle, it's not what you've got. If you want a battle-winning tank, it's not what you've got. I'm not running it down because my regiment will be one of the, the regiment, which is now the Royal Dragoon Guards, will be one of the first ones to be equipped with it as and when it comes out. And I'm sure by the time it comes out, it'll be good. But it's, I don't know how many years late it is. The equipment procurement has not been assessed, but it's not as easy as those who criticize it would think it is. I can't say I'd, I'd have done a better job. I can't say that at all. Because you get competing pressures, you get commercial pressures, you get political pressures, this is my constituency, etc., etc. Lots of things. We all know what the competing things are. But I come back to my central premise, which is that if you know what you want to do and you know how badly you want to do this as a this thing as opposed to that thing, you get your priorities right. But a lot of what is maybe goes amiss with our equipment is that we try and design the perfect thing as opposed to getting something that's pretty well there and saying, let's produce it early and cheaply as opposed to over-refining it. That's a classic with procurement, isn't it? You set down one specification, period of time goes by, then you say, I'd like it to do this, but that adds time and cost onto whatever platform you're looking at. And also, I just wonder what your thoughts were on officers that go in to do these jobs, usually only there for two years, so you have the continuity issues. I just 
Do you think that feeds into it? Yeah, or is yeah, that just... yeah. These are all things that do it. But the whole, this is not just the Ministry of Defence, the whole government procurement system militates, I think, against quick decisions. Give you an example. After I left the military, I was, I was working with someone who bidding to do a, a piece of work for a part of the army. It doesn't matter who it was or what it was. And the bid process was going to take so long and cost so much that only the really big companies could compete. And there was a time when the government was saying, we want to encourage SMEs, small and medium enterprises. Sitting around the table, I was sitting around there as just the two of us, and there were four or five big bid teams. Now, only one of those bid teams was going to be successful. The other four bid teams were going to lose their jobs. There was no incentive for them to come to a quick conclusion. Not at all. Mm-hmm. If you're a bid team who are in place and you're being paid, whatever it is, and you know that any one of them is going to succeed, why would you want to come to a quick decision? And it, I'm not saying people did it deliberately, but just, just subconsciously. We come onto the headhunting thing or whatever, what I do now, but later. But every time that a bid was finally announced, I would be inundated with people as a headhunter. I'd be inundated with people from the other three or four or however many bid teams saying, I'm looking for a job, can you help? A lot of them were absorbed back into their parent companies, but a lot of them weren't. Yeah, that, that's interesting what you say there because I was involved in defence work after I left and I was involved in a big project and I went in on some commercial negotiations. knew nothing about commercial, it was just there for my education and I just sat there around the table with my mouth shut. At the end of the day, we walked out and got had got everything we wanted, which the team before they went in were surprised at. Uh, but one of the guys were having a meal afterwards turned around and said to me, he goes, of the MOD negotiating side, if they were any good, they'd be working for us. I know that's deeply cynical, but I'm just wondering, is it down to the fact that you've got better paid people on the commercial company side as opposed to sitting in MOD? I don't know. I'm wondering yeah, if I, on I, that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I I don't wear that Mm. at all, I have to say. Definitely not. As quite a lot of the people were quite the opposite. You saw people who you'd known in the military were not particularly, not necessarily in the top flight. You suddenly found them doing an important job in the in, in industry. You thought, how the hell did they get there? My final thing after Commanding 7 Brigade, I went to the Ministry of Defence. And during that time, I got a call from no lesser figure than CGS. And I got this call saying, CGS would like to see you in his office tomorrow morning. The upshot of all is I ended up going over to Macedonia. This is at the beginning of the just before the Kosovo campaign, I'd been banging on about how I wanted some operational time, so I couldn't complain. So I sent over to run a thing called Kosovo Verification Coordination Center, which is basically an intelligence gathering center. And we had alongside us, we had a French-led 
Reaction Brigade, and we were there to stop nasty things happening in Kosovo. We, well, that didn't work. And then General Jackson came over with his corps of 48,000 or whatever, and they made sure it did work. But particularly in the time before the heavy gang arrived, uh, because I, as a sort of senior NATO rep, I ended up talking with all the local politicians, um, the Macedonian politicians. So the prime minister was a, a very charming, very able 38-year-old former brick-throwing student who had got himself elected. And rather in the sort of Zelensky mode, but I'm not saying he's in any way the same way, but someone who comes to the archive, the man, and he did a fantastic job. And we had very close relations with him. They had, they had the oldest president living at the time, Gligorov, who'd been half killed in a car bomb of 30-odd years earlier and lost half his face and various other bits. It was a fascinating time. It was more a political role than a military role. It was a heartening example of how military people, and I, that mean myself and my staff, could perform a very useful role. But that role was only successful because they knew that behind, behind us, behind myself and the, my French equivalent, was a very large number of rather nasty people who could come and get involved if they had to, and not to mention a very large the highest number of sorties we had in aircraft sorties we had in the day when the operation began, by which stage I was I was a bit part player. The highest number of sorties, I think it's like eight hundred sorties in a day. It was extraordinary. And so our influence comes back to what I was saying at the beginning. Our influence is based on the fact that we are really good at doing what we do because they know what's behind us. We can be influential because they know what's behind us. And this may come out disjointed in, in this talk. My key beliefs is that we mustn't forget what we're actually all about. So we're not in a social experiment. We're not there to promote a good idea or to readdress gender or race or any other imbalance. We're there to be an effective operational machine. And our, our role in life is the focused application of violence. The, the military is there to help persuade people who otherwise wouldn't act in the prescribed manner, the, the manner prescribed by the world order by the UN, by NATO or whoever. And I think we lose track of that. And it's because of how well we're organized, because of how well we are led pretty well always, by how well we are actually equipped compared to other organizations, because of our ability and our capability, we can do lots of other things. We're very good at delivering aid. We're very good at building Nightingale hospitals because we have a straightforward structure of command, we have straightforward communications, we're very good at what we do. What we are all about and what we must never lose sight of is that we are there to enforce, we armed forces to enforce the government, the world community's view on people who otherwise might not listen. Uh, and it's, it's interesting you should bring that up because one of the arguments about Putin is that we haven't projected that willingness to deploy violence on a large scale if political issues fail. And I know Ukraine wasn't a NATO country, so there's no Article 5 involved. But going back to what you were saying there, do you think that our sort of unwillingness to get involved again in any sort of foreign conflict gives people like Putin the feeling that they can get away with what they get away with? I don't think we are at all unwilling to. In fact, if there's anything, right, we've been too willing to get involved in things we shouldn't have done. Uh, and that's the, that's the subtle difference, though, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I'm, I'm the last person to talk about this because my limited experience is really around Cyprus, the Balkans, and a little bit of local stuff here and there. 
and as I say, I'm not the best person to ask or to comment on them, but sucked my teeth a bit when we went into Afghanistan just because as a historian and a military historian, one of the two basic rules of warfare is, well, one of them is never march on Moscow in the winter, and the other one is never invade Afghanistan. Any deployment to Afghanistan just fills me with dread, would just fill me with dread. It wouldn't mean that if I had an opportunity to go there, I would love to have gone there, but I'd left by then. Together with a lot of people, I was probably, as a interested observer, sucking my teeth a bit over Iraq War too. Uh, but the one that really got me scratching my head was was Libya. I didn't understand. I actually asked our CGS and the French CGS were together at, at a conference in Rusi, and I actually sidled up to them because I knew both of them uh, and said, look, just if you don't mind me asking this privately, can you ever remember anything, us doing anything as stupid as what we're doing at the moment? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, do you think it's going to be a better place after we leave? Do you think the people of Libya are going to say thanks for that? And I said, I don't think they will. Anyway, that's just, just a personal opinion. Uh, and none of this reflects on the people who carried out the operations. None of it. Because as ever, we do things in our own way. And I don't subscribe to the view that, that everything we've done since whenever is a cock up, because I don't think it is. What we've got to get right is doing the things we should be doing, as opposed to doing the things that maybe should never be done. It's interesting we'll have this conversation on the anniversary of uh, 9-11 because uh, our interventions since then, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, in fact, all they've done is destabilise the the situation around the world and and make it a bit worse, a a hell of a lot worse in some respects. We certainly can't lay that at the military still. I'm not sure we can even lay it at the politicians still. Sometimes there's a feeling that something must be done. General Rupert Smith, talking at a symposium at Santos, which I happened to go to, said, if you're deciding whether to intervene or something, you've got to ask four questions. First one, is it legal? Do we have a UN mandate? Is a, are we breaking international law? Second one, is it moral? Is it right? Third one, is it proportionate? Are we applying the right amount of force? And the fourth one, and the one that you've got to be able to answer is, will it work? And if you apply those, I don't know if, he, if those were his ideas originally, but that's the first time I'd heard them put that way. And he's always been a very bright thinking soldier. And those are the four things. And will it work? If it won't work, don't do it. And that's, as I say, but none of that is gainsaying that bravery, the skill, the application of the people who do it. But you'd expect that in everything we do. If you look at the way... The, the way the Nightingale Health Falls were put up. If you look at the way the evacuation in Kabul the other day, the bravery, the skill, the the dedication of the people who did that under the most terrible circumstances is awe-inspiring, genuinely awe-inspiring. I left really for, mainly for personal reasons. My family life was in a bit of turmoil. My wife was terminally ill and subsequently died of MS. And I just got back from Macedonia, and much as I'd loved it, I came back to find a fairly dysfunctional situation at home. I was wondering what to do, and in hindsight, in a way, I wish I hadn't left, but I did, because anyway, for various reasons. But I bu- happened to bump into a friend, and he said, oh, there's a job going that would suit you. So I went for the interview. The first time I'd ever had an interview since I joined the army, I was offered the job, worked for someone else running a headhunting company, which was a great success. Then 9-11 came and the dot-com bubble burst and we had to get rid of a lot of people. And so I set up on my own. That's in 2001, 2002. And I've been doing it ever since, headhunting ever since. And the first 10, 14 years of my time as a headhunter, I did quite a lot of pro bono work helping people leaving the army resettle. 
including lecturing on the Career Transition Partnership with CTP. And I learned a lot by doing that. I think I contributed a fair amount as well doing that. You asked a question about the military going into civilian life. Let me be more specific. The There are very good things about ex-military people going into civilian life. They are disciplined. They are generally more extrovert than their contemporaries. They are good communicators. They tend to be good with people. And they tend to want to see things through. They don't tend to be too many quitters. The negatives where there are any, some are very tech unfriendly. And I cut myself there. I never really had to get to grips with word processing or typing and these others because I always had someone to do it for me beyond a certain level in life. bit tech unfriendly. There is a perception, sometimes true, that tend to be like to have other people to do the work. I mean, if I compare, I know there are good reasons, but if I compare the outer office of a senior general with the outer office of the head of BP, it's three or four times the size. There's a perception Officers, particularly senior officers, want to always be telling other people what to do. And I think the key thing, listen about me, about military people, is that they are good with people, they're interested with people. Because I was interviewing a lot of military people for looking for jobs, four or five a day anyway, they had they created exactly the same impression. The worst examples of service people of which there were very few, but I did come across probably two or three in 14 years, literally that few out of probably five or 600, could give us a really bad Im- image of, of being very self-important, very self-obsessed, very whatever. I think the other thing we understand is time pressure. And so if you were told you got to cross the start line at 10 o'clock, you cross the start line at 10 o'clock. You may have your ass hanging out. You still cross the start line at 10 o'clock. I would say, I, I never really understood figures. I still don't, I think. And I never really appreciated the value of commerce and share prices and things like that. But I did understand how to improve people's performance, how to make them feel more valued, and how to make that. And I think, going back to what the services bring, that, that they bring that, and they bring it in spades. And it's something, like, for the first few months after all those few months, years after I left the military, I was trying to be a civilian, trying to be a really good civilian and talk in civilian speak and things like that. But after about two years, I said, actually, what's important is what I remember from my military time and the lessons there and all the things. And we used that. I formed a training company, Benchmark Training, which I subsequently sold to my partner. We trained railwaymen at all levels, but they were normally the equivalent of a section commander. We were teaching them the basics of leadership. And this wasn't about being inspirational or anything like that. It was teaching them mechanics of leadership. And what the military does is the toolkit that the military gives you, the mental toolkit it gives you. So you know how to make a plan. You know how to give a CIPRA. Okay, and you can civilianize it. But if you're reporting an accident on the railways... If you use the same formula every time and everyone understands the formula, and if there are four serials in it, they're missing serial number two, they go back to number two and say, where's serial number two? We got these people who were typically in their 30s with about 15 years experience, really good technically, really good at what they did, but in some cases didn't have a Scooby-Doo on how to lead 
because they'd never been told. They didn't have the the toolkit to say, what should I do now? And I think we've had a fantastic training, which is adaptable to pretty well every situation we come across. The negatives of a military career they are so tiny by comparison, and they can easily be drummed out of one. And I, I found someone a job as he was a manager, and the first thing he went into his boss, his new boss, to do was say, I'd, I'd like an assistant. And he said, well, previous five managers haven't needed an assistant. Why do you need one? I've always had one. That doesn't help. And we're not saints. We're not brilliant at what we do, but we've got some very good skills, some of which have been honed in over hundreds of years in trying circumstances by people smarter than I am. And they work. I was at a history festival at the weekend and General Darrett was there with Robert Lyman and they're publishing a book, which is due out shortly, about the British Army and the interwar period and basically where it went wrong. And the, the title of the book is From, From Victory to Defeat. In it, he digressed a little bit and he was talking about where he thinks the British Army should be going. And he basically alluded to the fact that we're, we're about to, he thinks we're about to enter Cold War Two. And there's a question there, did the Cold War end or was it just on ice for a while, if you pardon the pun? But he basically said, armour, infantry fighting vehicles, decent investment. And he also made an interesting point about mass, i.e. we require mass. And he also made another point saying that he feels the British have never considered the army as a strategic asset. That job has always fallen to the Royal Navy. Two-part question really is, what do you think of that point that Darrett made about the army not being taken seriously as a strategic asset? And where do you think the British Army's going? Okay. I, I, I know Richard quite well. We were brigade commanders together and things like that. We, I, I've known him and respect his ideas for a long time. On the equipment side, I couldn't agree with him more. Well, you would expect me to say this anyway. People have been predicting the de- death of the tank for a long time. I think it's a very useful battle-winning equipment. It's certainly very impressive. If I just give you the example of going back to the Berlin days where we had chieftain tanks and I think the Soviets had T-62s and things like this. We were in Spandau and the Spandau jail was guarded by every once in every four months. It was guarded by a Russian company. And whenever our chieftain tanks rolled past, they were made to look inwards so they couldn't see how terrifying they were compared to their own tanks. And it was a psychological effect. Now, balancing that and their battle-winning capability, balancing that against their vulnerability, things like drones and all that, it, it's a you need a balanced force. I can't believe there will be a war in the near future where you wouldn't be better off with armor than without it. I can't believe there wouldn't be a better t- time when a vehicle like Warrior would not be extremely useful to you. And you can't put all your eggs in your basket. You can't say, we just want arm, we just want this, we just want the other. We are in danger of being too small. Definitely in danger of being too small. We're in danger of not having enough fighting power as opposed to technical expertise of just raw fighting power. We are, there is a danger there. And I think if we let that go, going back to my earlier thesis about we are there about the application of force, we're not there to ruin your day and black out your television programs. We're there to really hurt you. And you can't do that without the weapons and the people to do it with. And that, so that's that. In terms of the strategic asset, in terms of long reach, inevitably, Navy and Air Force are going to outdo us. But 
in terms of effectiveness, in terms of influencing people's... I mean, it, what are you talking about as a strategic asset is the ability to change people's minds at a senior level, at an elevated level, and possibly at a great distance. The distancing, we can get flown there, but changing people's minds, nothing changes people's mind more than having someone else's troops on your territory. Someone else's troops standing there. And for all the, going back to the example of Kosovo, for all the times that the Serbian troops in Kosovo found their barracks being smashed to pieces, they didn't come to the negotiating table until the troops were massed on their border. Having those number of forces ready to deploy and deploying had a greater impact than 63 days of hundreds of missions a day. It's a slightly facile argument, which is more important, because they're all important. But I believe that the, the army is a strategic asset, and I think it, if it isn't seen as that by some people, it should be, because it, it is ultimately it's the man on the man or the woman or the people on the ground who will persuade you to change your mind. As usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury items. So I'll be interested in, to see what you've picked, David. The books I've enjoyed most have tended to be biographies, histories. But the most impressive and the one I enjoyed reading a long time ago now was the biography of General MacArthur, who I think is one of the more fascinating military types of his, of our of any era. I've read all the books about Napoleon. I struggled through the three volumes on Montgomery. Inevitably, not uh, written by Nigel Hamilton. Very good books, very detailed. But my favourite biography, I would think, is that. My luxury item, my iPad. Can't go anywhere without my iPad. I read my books on it. I read my newspaper on it. I watch telly in it. I've had quite bad cancer the last couple of years. And I spent quite a lot of time in hospital, and I don't know how I would have got by without my iPad. It's fantastic. But what was the other thing? Films. Inevitably, Zulu's quite high up there. Older films, I there was a fantastic film called it's The Sand Pebbles, which had Richard Attenborough, Sir Candice Bergen, and Steve McQueen. Yeah, I may have been influenced in the very beautiful girl I went to see the film with, so, but I reckon my all-time favourite is probably Zulu. General MacArthur, very interesting character. Any particular biography you could recommend to listeners? I, uh, can't, I, I can't remember who it was, but it was a while ago. I read it because I saw a film on MacArthur, and I thought, this is an interesting guy. If you want a cracking example of where the military can get it right and wrong, MacArthur is your man. He just pushed his luck with the politicians a bit too much at the end, but he was, I think he was a brilliant soldier. He exemplified most of what was good and some of what was bad. And he just... You can't deny that he's getting sacked for threatening or appearing to threaten to use nuclear force against the Chinese and the Koreans is uh, a well, huge he, reason for him getting sacked, wasn't it? Yeah, for the, I genuinely think that was more a pissing contest between him and Truman. Because he I, only enjoyed landing suddenly very successfully. I think Truman was saying, I'm the boss. And MacArthur was saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I like that sort of character. I love larger-than-life characters. MacArthur's handling of the Japanese after the war was exemplary. The way he made Emperor, he said, we're not going to push his nose in the dirt. We're going to make him be very aware he's lost this war. 
but we are not going to remove his privileges. We're not going to lead him through the streets of the bamboo cage or whatever anyone else wants to do. And he was very good like that. And the Filipinos loved him. The Japanese loved him. And this is a man who'd done more than probably anyone else to ensure the defeat of the Japanese, leaving aside the nuclear weapons. But like Pat, I suspect in a way like Montgomery, I won't comment on that. He had an ego, huge ego. He had a lot to have an ego about. Fascinating character, without a doubt. Very multi-layered as well. So my choice this week is Sean Longdon's The Victor of the Spoils. The book takes us on a journey from D-Day to VE Day, and he brings us a, a, a gritty, boots-to-the-ground perspective of the 21st Army Group. What I liked about it is it's not all about the heroic battles and grand strategies. Instead, he goes into what he describes as the sex and drugs and rock and roll of soldiering during one of the most critical periods in history. And it's a, a it's more of a social history of soldiering in a war yeah. context. And he, and he goes through a lot of interviews, documents and personal accounts to uncover the stories of the soldiers and a kind of portrayal of wartime soldiering and all its brutality and humour. And he often shines a light on how they were profoundly affected by the experience and how poorly they were treated by governments after the war. So if you want to understand the human aspects of World War II from the front lines to the homecoming as a piece of social history, this book's a great read. Quite, yeah, there's, another one, there's another one which is, I don't, can't remember who's writing it, but I, I'm reading it at the moment, called um, Brothers in Arms, about the Sherwood book. Um, James, Ho- James Holland. That's right. It's very detailed. It, it's not a light read. Being an armoured man, it really captures the ethos of it all, or the ethos of armour and the ethos of cavalry. What also comes through is the very, not nonchalant, the very matter-of-fact way in which they're saying, yeah, and that squad had eight dead this time, and they buried 48 this week. And this is a this is an organization that's only 100 strong. And you've got second lieutenants commanding squadrons, and just mind-boggling, the sheer grind in the, the Bokhaj country, the sheer grind of that operation from D-Day to, from D, as I say, D-Day to B-Day. I think one of the most impressive characters was Padre Skinner. I don't know if you've yes, come across him in yeah. it yet. Non-military people are quite ignorant about the role of army padres, but Padre Skinner was a hugely impressive character who would not let any of his soldiers, and that's what you refer to him as, his soldiers go unburied. He went looking for them around the battle space if they were missing. He made sure they all got decent burials. A very humane and impressive bloke. So thanks to David for coming on the podcast and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming and our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us at all the usual suspects including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And if you've downloaded us from iTunes like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing help and offering technical support for his company ISAR. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.